Good Sunday morning. Happy to have you with us. My name is Susie Jones. We're here together for an hour today. And we have a lot to talk about because we have a fantastic guest. One of my favorite people to talk to about all things infectious disease. (laughs) Good morning, Dr. Michael Osterholm, University of Minnesota Infectious Disease Director. Thanks for coming on on a Sunday morning. You know how much I appreciate it. Thank you, Susie. Good to be with you. Yes, I know you're back from a conference out. Uh, where were where was the conference? Oh, actually, it was a meeting. I was actually oh. at um, in Washington D.C. Okay, okay. I know you. Yeah, yeah. Do a lot of work. I was just thinking, driving in, Doctor O, that um, it's been four years. Was it four years in February, March that I came back from Florida and my mom said, "Be careful," and I said, "For what?" <laughs> yeah, you you're know, right. We were starting to talk about being on airplanes and such. So yeah, it's uh, it's amazing that four years has gone by. It is. It's been a long time, a long time, and unfortunately, it's still with us. Yeah, as you said, it will find us. We want to remind our listeners for the next hour. We do have you on our line, and we're and a lot of people still have a lot of questions because there are a lot of questions surrounding the illness. The number, the talk and text line is 651-461-9226. Again, you can either call and ask your question directly or you can text it. A lot of people like to text 651-461-9226. And as we are lining up calls, Dr. Osterholm, I just wanted to ask you about the news last week about the CDC uh, changing some of its guidelines when it comes to uh, isolation and how long you have to stay home and what that all means. One question I had, so the new guidelines are you don't have to stay home for five days. But if you're sick, you should, right? I mean, that's not like go to work, right? Yeah, Yeah, well, let me clarify what happened last week. Uh, The Washington Post ran a story early in the week uh, indicating that CDC was going to change their guidelines. Um, There has been no statement from the CDC to that effect yet. I, I know that that's under consideration. And so at this point, there is no formal action that's been announced by the CDC on this issue. But let's take a step back. Uh, What's happening uh, is that at state and local levels, recommendations have already begun to change. And part of that is the fact is that, number one, the science, first of all, has not changed. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But what has happened in society? How, how, How are they dealing with this issue right now? If you were to uh, and as I just did coming back from Washington, D.C., you find almost no one who wears any kind of a mask. And even that is important because only the N95, really what we call the respirator mask, really protect you. So a lot of people I see who have worn masks over the course of the pandemic often wore very ineffective ones, uh, kind of like a screen door on your submarine. And so that's not helpful. So what, what the reason is, is that we're looking at this is right now, uh, the recommendation has been uh, to stay home for five days uh, and, and to not go after you've been diagnosed, whether you're well or not. And uh, originally it was 10 days. And the reason for that is the science actually says that uh, you actually have the virus off in four or five days uh, and up to 10 days. And the question is, how infectious are you, though? You may be infected, but you're likely to be most infectious in those first 24 to 48 hours after you get uh, ill. And then on top of that, up to 40% of people may not ever show any symptoms and be infected and actually transmit the virus. And so the question is, uh, today, are we going to have kids out of school 
uh, people who can't go to work, who don't have sick time, et cetera, if in fact they are not sick anymore, meaning that they, they may have had one or two days of illness, uh, tested positive, should they stay home or away from the public. And if you look at the overall transmission, the vast majority of it is occurring when people are sick. So just as you just said, yes, people should not go to work when they're sick. Yeah. And yet we know people still do. Number two, if in fact you were sick and you are no longer ill, you don't have a fever for a day or more, uh, would in fact then you test your child or your, yourself and at least stay home during that time period for at least a day afterwards. And right now, most people are not even doing that. And mm. I think that one of the challenges we have is people say, well, you guys are, you guys are changing the science. You're, you know, you're giving in to the virus. No, what, what really is we're trying to do is go where the public is at and what they will do. Mm. And they say, well, look, okay, that's the same as saying <clears throat> with seatbelts, for example. People don't want to wear a seatbelt. Okay, fine. You don't have to. That's not true. We don't have any mechanism to make people stay home if they're sick and be tested. None. Mm-hmm. There's no law. There's no way I could know. If, if you were sick this morning, Susie, and, and uh, felt like you still wanted to go into work, you know, who, who would know that or who could tell you that mm-hmm. and do something with that? Whereas if you have a seatbelt, you can have a law that says you have to wear it. And if you don't, we can find you if we pick you up. Uh, every time someone's in an automobile accident and unfortunately fatally injured, they always report out was the person wearing a seatbelt or not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give people the encouragement. And that's not the case here. We would never know. So what we have the job of in public health is trying to convince people to do the right thing. And the right thing would be to not be out and about when you're clinically ill. But to get that, we're going to have to say, okay, you, that's first 24 to 48 hours is where the problem is mm. and uh, the biggest part of the problem. And if we can even accomplish that, we will reduce transmission. Yeah. Now, having said one last thing, having said that, the key, though, at all of this is last week, COVID was the number seventh killer in this country last week. Mm. So please know I take this very seriously, very seriously. And I'm someone who is in that age group that is at the highest risk for serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. I take that very personally. I've had COVID. I had long COVID. I take that very personally. So I really am one of the very first to say, you know, this disease still is really important. But what that means then is if we vaccinated everyone who is 65 years of age and older, if we could convince them to be vaccinated, we would greatly reduce the number of deaths. Right now, less than 50% of that population has received a recent vaccine that is quite protective against serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. If I do get sick, we know that taking Paxlovid, that drug, can be very helpful, very helpful in reducing serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. And so from that perspective, we ought to be doing that. We ought to be getting it to people, and we're not. Mm. So I think that the combination of having people at least stay home when they're sick and making sure that we vaccinate those at highest risk and get into the drug, we can do so much to reduce yet what is still a challenge with, with this virus in the community. All right. Again, you're listening to Dr. Michael Osterholm with the University of Minnesota, and we're talking about COVID. If you have a question or a comment, you can jump in at 651-461-9226, 651-461-9226. You can text us a question or call. We'll take a short break right now, and then we'll get to Dan, who is on our news line, and also a questions online about 
what happens when you have COVID? Can it, how can it affect other parts of your body? And we'll get to that after this on News Talk 830 WCCO. And we are back. It is 720 on a Sunday morning. My name is Susie Jones. And our guest this hour, Dr. Michael Osterholm, University of Minnesota Infectious Disease Director. And we are talking about COVID and where we are with it some four years later. 651-461-9226. You can call that number or you can text us a question. It is 24 degrees outside. Let's go to Dan. Dan has a question, I believe, about vaccines. Hi, Dan. You're on the air with Dr. Osterholm. Hi, Susie. Hi, Dr. Osterholm. I just wanted to say how much I respect Dr. Osterholm's uh, opinions over the years. I think he's one of the brightest people we have in Minneapolis. But my question is, how often should we still be getting the COVID shots? I've had all of the shots, you know, in the series of them, but what are we looking at next for shots? Yeah, Dan, well, thank you for your very kind comment. And, uh, Thank you for really a very important question, one that's really uh, right at the heart of much of the discussion today about reducing the risk of serious illness in people uh, who are over 65, for example, uh, who are younger but have immune deficiency diseases, and even our youngest children. Currently, the FDA has approved an additional dose starting last October up until what appears to be next fall. Now, many of us in the business are absolutely in disagreement with that and have been pushing hard uh, to change that because the data now really demonstrates that the vaccine provides good protection against serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths for about six months, and then it wanes, just like annual flu vaccine wanes over time. The difference is, is that with the flu season, we can pretty well protect, uh, predict it's going to occur between November and February. And so if you get your shot for flu uh, you know, before that mid to late November date, you're likely to have good protection for those next few months. With COVID, that's not the case. This is not a seasonal virus yet. And what I mean is it just doesn't automatically occur in the winter. Since the pandemic began, there's been nine major peaks. In cases where cases go way up and they come down and they go way up and then they come down. And if you look at those peaks, they've been equally distributed through all four seasons of the year. And they've occurred most often when a new variant of one of the virus changes, the mutation changes occurs. And then this is virus is more capable of infecting us. And so what we want to do is always be ahead of a new variant development. And in addition, we know that in humans, like I said just a moment ago, the, over time, the protection of the vaccine wanes. So I think what we really need to do is what they've just approved in the United Kingdom, and that is every six months you can get vaccine. Now, I know there are a lot of people who won't get one dose. How am I going to get them one every six months? Well, you know, I, that's a challenge. But at least making it available for those who are 65 years of age and older, for example, where over 90% of the deaths occur, or among those who are immune compromised, would go a long ways in helping to protect against that serious illness, hospitalization, and death situation. And I think we could greatly reduce the number of deaths in this uh, country from COVID. As I mentioned just a moment ago, it's the number seventh killer in the country this week. And so that's where we're hoping FDA will eventually get to. There's a lot of pressure on them right now to reconsider their recommendation and not wait and just give it every fall, but make it permissible to give every six months. But so, Dan, 
the the good news is I think that these vaccines used over time, particularly among high-risk people for serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths, can go a long ways in reducing that. The bad news is we still are now tied into a system where they want to give it every fall and early winter like we do flu. Mm. And I think that's a wrong approach. And so uh, stay tuned. We're working on that. And we hope we can uh, get FDA convinced that, that they really need to reevaluate their position on this. And then I would say get it every six months, you know, like changing your oil routinely. You know, get your dose every six months. And I think you will have a lot of protection against serious illness. Dr. Osterm, I have a question because we got it from a listener. Sure. And I actually have a neighbor who had COVID four years ago and died and died because he would not take medicine because he felt that if he did, he would be contributing money indirectly to Dr. Um, Anthony Fauci. I just lost the yeah, name for a yeah, minute. Yeah, you know, yeah. he really did. He said, I'm not going to take any medicine that, that Fauci's going to get. And somebody just said that, you know, how is, are you benefiting financially from keeping COVID? It's a ridiculous thing to bring up. Yeah. However, I, it, people really, really believe it. And it's, and I do think that I don't know how to help people understand that, you know, that to take your, to take chances with your own life just to have a stand and believe you don't want to, you know what I mean? It's a tough yeah, one. Yeah. It's a tough nut to crack. Well, you know, Susie, let me put this into some perspective. First of all, we estimate, uh, and and the numbers are very transparent. You can see how we came to this. Over 300,000 people in the United States in the last four years have died from COVID because they wouldn't be vaccinated or take a drug. Think about that. 300,000. That's remarkable. And if you look at the deaths that they've occurred primarily uh, among that group in those states where uh, there has been a real pushback on vaccine. And, you know, every state has a pushback group. But if you look at it also, there is no truth to anything. You know, just for my own disclosure, I've never had a penny of pharmaceutical money in my life. You know, I get none, have none. I have a salary from the University of Minnesota that is very transparent, what I get, where the money comes from. And, you know, I've had that uh, same accusation made about me that, you know, I'm pushing vaccines because there must be something in it for me. Okay, what's in it for me is I don't want to have my friends, family uh, and others die from COVID or be seriously ill. You know, I've got several dear friends uh, who, you know, I with my best advice to them. They still wouldn't believe that these vaccines were safe or effective or that there was some other, uh, you know, story behind the vaccines and wouldn't get vaccinated. And they died. I mean, it was tragic. And I, I've, I've often regretted myself. Was there something else I could have done mm. to help convince them how important these vaccines are? And so this is a challenge. And this is also something I think that, you know, oftentimes we dismiss this kind of thing as well. This, these are crackpots. You know, they're not. They're, they're often people who have really legitimate concerns. You know, the Internet has been a vehicle for sharing lots of disinformation, just mm. untrue information. And then people hear that and say, well, but what? And, you know, my my response to that is, you know, let me hear what you think. Tell me what you're hearing. And then let me tell you what I know and how I know it. And then we can maybe decide that there's some middle ground here that you can go and, and, and come to get vaccinated yeah. because the outcome and the options are just horrible. 
Yeah. And so I think you're right. And, and, you know, this is a challenge. You know, I just will say right now, you know, Dr. Fauci has never benefited anything from pharmaceutical industry either. It's very public. It's all disclosed information, yeah. what his salary was and where that money came from. And so, uh, you know, the idea that this is a conspiracy with the pharmaceutical industry just isn't true. And if we had no vaccines, we would have lost many, many more than even 300,000 people. And so thank God we had them. Right. Okay. It is 728 on WCCO radio. We have about, well, at least 20 or 25 text questions. We're not going to get to all of them, but maybe we can grab one here. (laughs) No, Um, this one asks, I had COVID pretty bad in September and October. How long should I wait to get another vaccine or booster? Well, this is an individual that actually is probably in better shape than me because I got vaccinated in October and I can't get another dose of vaccine now. And like I said, until uh, next fall, unless the FDA changes that. But the person who just asked that question did develop some good protection from having been infected. And that protection will last like a dose of vaccine for about four months or so. But as early as three months after that infection, they can get a dose of vaccine. So right now, uh, I would urge them to get one because here we're sitting in February, go back to October. You can see we're kind of that four, six-month window. And so if they were, uh, I'm sure they were not vaccinated prior to this with this new dose, they can get it now, and it's free of charge. And they then at that point will have another four to six months of protection. So that's the good news for them right now is I'm sorry you had to be infected uh, to get that protection initially for the fall. But uh, now that you have it, uh, it's going to start waning. Get that dose of vaccine because you're still eligible because you've not received one yet uh, uh, since October. And uh, you'll, you'll be good into um, into the summer. Okay. We'll ask this one and see if we can't get the question answered, and then we'll do some business, and I'll tell you about the weather forecast. This is a, this is a, I think it's a long COVID question. How does COVID, having had COVID, affect your bladder, your heart, cysts, and um, just in general, your body? And I know a lot of people yeah, were talking yeah. about long COVID. In fact, a producer from the weekday here asked me to ask you a question about how it affects swallowing in their throat and tightening. So I think yeah. people really have all those feelings. We want to kind of get at what's true and what's not true and what does COVID do to your body. Um, Shu, why don't you answer that and then we'll take a break right after that. Well, I, I wish I could answer it in, <laughs> I know, a, it's in very a better hard. way than I'm going to answer. And then I'm going to answer because say that, First of all, this is a really important question, very important question. And I, for one, was one of those people that actually had some long COVID symptoms. So I understand it very personally. Um, What we now realize is that this virus actually sets up a person's immune system, in some cases, to continue to fire long after the virus is gone, meaning that it's not the virus doing it anymore, but it's triggered off this immune response. And you know, our immune systems are incredible, incredible parts of our body that we just don't think of as an organ and, you know, like a brain or the heart or the kidneys or whatever. But it's a constantly going through our body looking for foreign cells that shouldn't be there, things like bacteria, but even cancer cells. And that's great. But sometimes it gets too vigorous. It's an over response. And that then can cause inflammation. It can cause damage to the organs that we have. 
And that's what we often see with long COVID. There are many different organs that have been involved with long COVID. And it's because of this immune process. And the good news is that has led us to start looking very carefully at types of drugs that can dampen the immune response without eliminating it. Because we don't want to lose it. But then we will die from, you know, being immune compromised. And so we're trying to get this very, very fine balance. This kind of reminds me of, you know, the, the big surfers out, at, out in Mumbai where they are at 60 feet up in the, those waves. You don't want to be too far forward or too far back. You want to be right at the top of the wave. And that's what we try to do with our immune system, and that's what COVID really sends it into a, a major challenge with. All right, it is 6.32, 7.32, I'm sorry about that. Check your clock, it is 7.32. The number is 651-461-9226. We'll take a quick break, but we do have a number of calls and texts to get to on the other side of this break on News Talk 830 WCCO. And we are back. It is 736. We're going to jump right in because Dr. Michael Osterholm is our guest, and he is a valuable source of information for all things infectious disease related. We're talking about COVID. We've got a couple of other texts as well. A person asked us via text line at 651-461-9226, talk about the RSV shot, the efficacy of the RSV shot, please. Right. RSV is uh, the initials for respiratory syncytial virus. It's another type of respiratory transmitted virus, much like influenza and COVID. And it's particularly hard on uh, the very, very young and the older population. And we now have vaccines that can be used that are very, very important. And we also have uh, a type of immune product uh, immune globulin product that basically is antibodies that have been generated that we can give temporarily uh, to young children uh, who are born who might be at very high risk for this. And so this, too, is a very important cause of serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. Uh, we've just gone through uh, a moderate RSV season uh, earlier in December, and uh, it's fortunate it's, it's winding down now. But at the same time, it's still present. And so this is a very, very good shot that's been approved. Uh, Boy, I couldn't wait to get mine. Uh, And I'd urge everyone, again, just like their flu shots. And this one uh, has a longer protection to it. So it's one that you don't have to get every uh, year, every few months. And uh, it's a really important one that can reduce uh, serious illness, particularly in newborns and uh, in older populations. All right. Back to COVID. Um, This one is from my mom. Long COVID. She is a huge fan of yours, by the way, Dr. Osterholm. Um, She has. Thank thank you, Mom. (laughs) She has a COVID brain, she calls it, where she feels like it's her brain is affected by having had bad COVID. And a doctor she recently saw suggested a vitamin uh, B6. I think it's B6. Is there any correlation to, like, a vitamin helping to ease some of that um, fog? Well, you know, I, I surely wouldn't want to give out medical advice here on the air. Yeah, you okay. Know, I'm, I'm a PhD. <laughs> but uh, let me just say that uh, I, first of all, really uh, am very interested in the same question because when I got COVID a year ago, it's been a year now, uh, for about four months afterwards, I had terrible challenges with fatigue. Uh, you know, I could get up and walk across the room and be as if I had just run a race. 
Uh, and in addition to that, I had what is often described as brain fog, where I just couldn't remember things. And you know, I couldn't, I, if, if I was on the air with you, Susie, I would think your name was Jane, you know, that type <laughs> of thing. It was one of those things where you just forgot. Yeah. And in my case, fortunately, after about four months, that started to resolve. And that, again, is tied to what I mentioned earlier is this inflammation, the immune response we see in the, and what it does potentially to cells throughout your body, including your brain. At this point, there is no evidence that I'm aware of that vitamins as such will reverse that. Uh, you know, it's going to be something likely over time that's going to occur where it'll just get better, like mine did and many others have. Um, or, in fact, we will start seeing more use of certain kinds of, of immune-modulating drugs, drugs that will help uh, take down the inflammation, which could, could be the issue there. There is no evidence that it's a long-term infection, meaning you're chronically infected, that mm -hmm. the virus is still there. This, again, is just the damage that it does in its acute phase. And, uh, and the, uh, you know, to really understand long COVID is going to, I think, give us many opportunities to study a lot of things, chronic Lyme disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, a lot of these different conditions that we now realize are really the sequelae or the result of having that initial infection with a certain infectious agent and then what it, the body does after that. And I think we're going to see uh, from this uh, research that we're doing right now lots of new advances in other areas of medicine, too, that will help deal with these post-illness kind of conditions. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of them. And I don't think, I, I'm not sure how much the general public kind of understands. Someone, I think you probably described it in the last four years, that when you get COVID, that inflammation, that shock to your immune system, you mentioned with about the the wave for the surfers, but that yeah. that jolt really can do damage to other parts of your body. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, and it's not just one organ, it's other uh, organs too. In fact, and also the virus has changed over time in what it does. You may recall, it's, it's hard to believe, four years ago, but when people first reported COVID illnesses, it was often a loss of a sense of smell and taste. Remember that? People, people couldn't smell or taste anything for sometimes uh, months afterwards. And then over time, the virus continued to mutate, and that became less of a problem. And so, uh, you know, in the last several years, you hardly ever hear anyone talk about loss of taste or smell. Mm. And so also, as the virus itself has mutated and changed, how it does this kind of damage to the various parts of our body has changed, too. And so that means that we have to continue to keep up with that. Uh, and right now, though, uh, you know, there are a number of organs, the lungs, the heart, uh, the brain, et cetera, that still are affected by having COVID and then recovering, but still having the same symptoms. 651-461-9226. This texter writes, Dr. Osterholm, can you please talk about the Novavax vaccine and who might benefit? Yeah, this is another version of a vaccine. Remember, in the end, the you know, one thing we're trying to do is get the body's immune system to create a response to the virus that will basically interrupt the virus from getting into our body and then into a cell and starting to grow. And so there is a, a part of the virus called the spike protein. It's a very important part that allows the virus to attach to our cells and get in there. If they can't do that, then we don't get infected. 
Well, there's more than one way for someone to develop these antibodies or immune response to the spike protein. The mRNA vaccines are one type. There was another one called a chimp adeno vaccine that, again, it was all based on the spike protein. It was a different way to get that uh, immune response. The Novavax is another one of those vaccines. It's a different type of vaccine approach. Uh, it's a very good vaccine. Uh, and frankly, I am very high on it. I think it, it does a very good job. It has a very high safety profile. We've used it for other vaccines before COVID came along. So if you have access to Novavax, uh, I, I'm, I think it's a great opportunity. And frankly, uh, you know, I, if that were the vaccine dose for me for the future, what I could get, I'd, I'd get it in a heartbeat. All right, let's take a break. Our last break of the hour, 651-461-9226. A lot of people, a lot of questions. This is a very important topic, COVID vaccines and what it all means. And we have an expert here for 15 more minutes. 651-461-9226. We're back after this. All right, let's get to it. Dr. Michael Osterholm, University of Minnesota infectious disease doctor, specialist, all-around good guy. 651-461-9226. A texter writes, I have had COVID. Let's see, where is it? Uh, I've had COVID. I've had seven COVID boosters, the latest in October. Do I get another one at the end of six months? It is getting a little confusing, Mary. Yeah, so Mary, first of all, congratulations on getting those boosters. I'm convinced that that surely has uh, made you a healthier person overall and keeping you from getting serious illness with COVID. Um, As I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, you're not eligible for another one if you got one in October until what appears to be next fall. Uh, And unfortunately, I think that's the wrong approach. As I said, uh, we now know that these vaccines uh, provide good protection against serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths for up to six months. So your October dose is like my October dose right now. We're both uh, waning in our immunity and uh, could use another additional dose. So hang on. Uh, You may be hearing news in the upcoming uh, weeks that in fact you're now eligible to get one potentially every six months. And at that point, I would. Uh, you know, I know that seems like a lot, but it surely is a, a very minor investment uh, compared to keeping you out of the hospital uh, and being seriously ill. But so okay. right now you're not eligible to get another dose. Uh, but at some point, I hope that we get to, like the United Kingdom just did, where they went to basically roughly every six months, someone can get a dose of the vaccine. All right. The vaccines have had, this is from a texter at 651-461-9226. The vaccines have had a lot of negative side effects. This person writes, can you address having a vaccine side effect versus COVID, which is usually milder than it was originally? Can you address that question? Well, this is an important point, and I'm glad that the individual raised this issue because, first of all, Uh, Let me just say that, yes, for some people who get the vaccine, they feel pretty bad for a day or two, Uh, and some of them even in bed. And uh, that is unfortunate, and it happens also with flu vaccine. We see the same thing. But having said that, if you look at the overall serious kinds of illnesses that can occur with vaccine, uh, they are very, very, very rare. One that we hear about is myocarditis, kind of an inflammation of the heart area. And 
that has happened with the vaccines. I'm, it's a very, very small number uh, in the one per uh, almost million category. But in addition to that, uh, no one has ever gotten seriously ill with that. On the other hand, getting COVID, you have a many, many high, times higher risk of getting myocarditis and actually that killing you. And so oftentimes when we look at these vaccines, we have to look at the comparison between if this is maybe not something we wish would happen with the vaccines, but how does that compare if I don't get vaccinated uh, and get COVID? What are the chances of then having something happen? And I can tell you in every instance, any potential reaction with the vaccine, it is still a much, much better outcome than getting a natural infection and getting that uh, kind of illness. Uh, So I think that from that perspective, you know, all the benefits far, 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 far outweigh the, the downsides of it. Uh, and I would still say that, uh, you know, having even a day where I feel kind of like uh, I, I just want to stay in bed is a real advantage over having that stay be in a hospital where you're there for many days in bed. Yeah. Um, Charlie, our producer here, was just in Colorado recently, and one of his guests got COVID. They were in the same condo they were in the same Mm -hmm. plane and none of the guys other guys got it only him is that i mean does that show you kind of what a strange illness it is that it can get someone and not another well it has to do a lot with just how infectious you are and some people particularly if they've had it before or they've had vaccine before will actually be less infectious uh, at the time that they get infected and as i pointed out earlier uh, in addition, that that is a, a situation where uh, for only several days you may have any infectiousness at all and, and at the very beginning of your time. So, yes, so the, we've had many reports of a very similar situation. Now, ironically, when I got infected, uh, I got infected uh, with two other people at the same time. And we think that the likely source for that was a long elevator ride without our N95 respirators on. Wow, and so it can be as short as that too, Jeez. and so uh, yeah, it, it it's variable, and uh, oftentimes in the household, if one person gets it, we do see other people get it in the household. Okay, but not always. Okay, so we have a minute left. Let's just wrap it up. Uh, maybe just your reflections with one minute left. And sorry we didn't get to everybody. I guess I will ask this: if some all these people have questions, is there a place they can go? And again, remember we have less than a minute. Like some of these questions, is there somewhere? Yeah, they could I mean, go? I think you know you can follow our website. You know, it's free of charge. There's no nothing we try to sell you. Uh, that's the CIDRAP website, C I D R A P, at the University of Minnesota Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, and that has a lot of information on COVID, and we cover the news every day on okay. infectious diseases and put information out. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I so appreciate it. If you're willing to get up with us at 7 in the morning, we'll put you back on the schedule in (laughs) in a month or so, okay? Okay, Susie. It's great to talk to you. I appreciate it very much and to the audience. Thank Thank you. you. Have a wonderful day. Again, Dr. Michael Osterholm. If you didn't quite get that down, CIDRAP, C-I-D-R-A-P at the University of Minnesota. We're back after the news on News Talk 830 WCCO.